This is The Rounds Table. Welcome, everybody, to the Internet Work Times Rounds Table crossover. This is, I guess, the uh, meeting of the minds between our two teams here, both of whom are Canadian Internal Medicine podcasts. So for those of you who've never heard my voice before, I'm Allison. I am a general internist and I work at the University of Toronto at University Health Network. And I am the creator and executive producer of the Internet Work alongside my two partners in crime, Leah Karinopoulos, who is now an ICU physician, and Zara Morali, who is also a general internist. Awesome. And I guess I'll introduce myself as well for anyone who hasn't heard the rounds table before. Uh, my name is Mike Fralick, a general internist and clinician scientist. My clinical work occurs in two main places, Mount Sinai in downtown Toronto and Sault Ste. Marie, which is far north of downtown Toronto. Uh, my brother and I co-host the Rounds Table podcast. And Allison, uh, super excited that you and I are on the same podcast right now. I know this is super exciting to be sort of sharing the airwaves, I guess, um, is a way to put it. So maybe we can get started. And since we're sharing listeners and we're not sure that either of our listeners have listen to our respective podcasts, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about The Rounds Table and how it got started and where you guys are now. Yeah, The Rounds Table has been going on for eight plus years now. Uh, I got involved when I was the chief resident at St. Mike's, which would have been maybe six and a half some odd years ago. Um, so first started by uh, Amol Verma and Fahad Razak. Uh, as well as another member who I actually don't know. I think he's a surgeon or something. But um, uh, my brother and I, we took over the show almost three years ago. What do we do? Uh, we mainly talk about, you know, potentially practice changing um, studies relevant to internists, family docs and emerge docs, but mainly internists. And does that make sense so far, Allison, before I keep sort of going on? Yeah, for sure. It makes total sense. Yeah. So we released twice a month on the months that we sort of have our act together. And I'd say the main listenership is residents and uh, physicians and hopefully some med students here and there. But most of the content is higher level because we really want to, you know, sink our teeth into recently published clinical trials that are potentially practice changing. And then how about you, Allison? What is your origin story for the internet work? Yeah, so I actually started the internet work. Um, it sort of started out as an idea when I was an R1 doing my residency at McMaster University. And it was at the time when podcasts were sort of just starting to get popular. Serial had just come out, and that was all the rage at the time. And so I was actually listening to a grand rounds that we had, and I remember it distinctly on osteo. It was on osteoporosis. And at the time, I was like, man, I don't really know that I want to be here, but this would be great if it would just be like portable, like a podcast. And so that's kind of where the idea all started. And so it actually was my scholarly project during residency. And the idea was to create sort of scripts that would mimic senior teaching overnight, because I always felt that that was really high yield. And so over time, it's now become a learner-generated podcast where we have residents from all over Canada write effectively teaching scripts that we then record and release over our podcast. Um, and to date, it's included almost all the Canadian schools. I think we're still missing a few. But it's been really great to have engagement from internal medicine residents sort of all across Canada to really participate in sort of the education of other trainees 
at various levels of their training. So I think that's been really great. And then more recently, we've kind of had a bit of a spinoff series called the Internist Guide to that's been more of a Q&A session tailored towards the R3s or the third year residents who are preparing for the Royal College. And that really goes um, over some higher yield guidelines. Um, and I think that tailors to sort of more advanced clinicians who are sort of later in the stage in training. And then in addition to that, we've also created sort of a digital team, and that's included infographic producers and designers, sound editors, and then as well site teams at uh, four schools across Canada that help us to sustain the podcast through recruiters, recruiting of writers, following up on podcast script, helping with deadlines, and helping connect individuals to mentors. So it's become quite a large production since we've started, and I really wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, it's impressive. I think it certainly takes a village to build a successful podcast and your village spans the country. Whereas for John and I, we got, you know, a flag up in Toronto and a flag up in Calgary where he works, but certainly looking to expand not only our listenership, but also, you know, building it and growing the podcast. That's cool to hear. I actually didn't realize about the spinoff series because certainly I mean, guidelines are just so undigestible. I get them in principle, but it's kind of like, I'm not going to read this. So it's terrific to hear that you have a podcast to help with that. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a good point. Guidelines can be uh, tricky, to say the least. Um, but maybe now is the time to sort of segue thinking about how we use or how you use medical podcasts sort of in your day-to-day -day sort of life as a clinician scientist? And then also, you know, what has the response really been to your podcast that you've put out there? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm wondering, huh, is anyone out there listening? But we do have, you know, stats. So I know people are listening. I think it's always so fun when I like bump into someone like, hey, we actually listened to your, I listened to your podcast. Now, truth be told, that doesn't happen all often, but it sure is exciting. And I think from my standpoint, and I think my brother as well, actually recording the podcast really forces us to stay up to date on literature. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't, you know, be as up to date as I am. And so that's sort of a personal benefit of, of co-hosting uh, the rounds table. And it's always terrific to hear from listeners, get their feedback, what they like, what they hate. So that's how I would summarize it. But I don't know how it is for you. I feel like with your larger listenership and larger team, there's probably I don't know, like more feedback or how do you get feedback from your listeners? Yeah, I mean, truth be told, I think a lot of it is also just um, word of mouth between people who listen. And, you know, we've had a little bit of scholarly work come out of it just in terms of the original production and sort of how we got the whole project together. But a lot of it is really, one, the listenership continuing to grow to some of the learners giving us feedback, which sometimes I just feel I'm humbled in a sense because I'm like, wow, I can't believe you listened to this. And then, you know, the other thing that keeps us going, I think, is that people continue to want to write podcasts for us. You know, they reach out to us from schools who don't have site teams and say, hey, I've been listening to this. Can I write for you? And so that has really been a great sort of byproduct of continuing to grow is that more people want to become involved and write write a podcast for us. So that's that's been really great. And yeah, I would agree with you that even just in recording the podcast, even though we're not writing all of them, I always learn something new. And the great thing about how 
our residents write them is that they're from the perspective of people who are currently in training. And so that really gives me an idea of, you know, where are they coming from? Because sometimes when you're getting a little bit more senior in your career, you kind of just forget, you know, where, what did I know when I was, you know, a CC3 or what did I know when I was an R1 and what would be useful? And so when they put their podcast together, it's structured in a way that really is level appropriate. And it also helps me with helping to define how I approach teaching when I go on to the clinical wards and I have learners sort of from all different levels. So I agree with you just by just making the podcast and producing the podcast. I learned so much from everyone who's, you know, been so kind to participate. Yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. And I can think back to when I was a resident and I mean, some staff are great teachers, some staff are not, but it's the staff physicians that can remember, okay, what is an R1 did I know versus did I not know? And how can I give them this teaching point? That part is key for sure. And it makes sense when you talk about um, the content generation and the audience for your podcasts. You know, I'm now almost seven years post-residency. And I mean, staying up to date is impossible. I've accepted that fact. I know for me, my sort of go-to is really, like I said, doing the podcast, uh, Twitter as well. I mean, Twitter can be a bit of a dumpster fire at times, but I do find it's a nice way to sort of passively have things pushed to me that I wouldn't otherwise see. I'm curious from your standpoint, um, what are the tools you sort of use to stay up to date? Yeah, I would totally agree with you there. I think Twitter has a very distinct ability to really provide a lot of information in a very concise manner. One of the things that I really like on Twitter is after each conference, they'll often write, you know, like a top 10 papers or top five papers that come out of the conference. And so I think that's a really nice way to just try and keep on top of some of the emerging evidence that's coming out for whatever condition or whatever subspecialty at the time. I do get a few journal pushes into my inbox, but, you know, there's just so much information. And I think, you know, that's the beauty and maybe the curse of medicine is that there's always more to learn. And, you know, even now I'm like, ah, I don't know, like, what do I, what do I need to know? What should I know? How do I know? What am I supposed to know? And, I think that was another reason for me to start this podcast was that I was like, well, you know, at the very least, if I follow a podcast that is internal medicine oriented, then something gets pushed to the top of my feed and maybe it's not relevant today. Maybe it'll be relevant never or maybe it'll be relevant next week. But, you know, at the very least, I'm learning something. And so that was another impetus sort of to start the podcast when I did as an R1 when, you know, the learning goals are so broad and the um, structure of teaching is now very different from say medical school or your undergraduate career. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say about the sort of top five, top 10. I don't know when top five, top 10, top whatever became such an ingrained part of like social media and things I will click on, but it really works out well. And whenever I see a ooh, top five randomized trials or top five whatever and non-medicine stuff, it is so hard not to click it. And it makes me think, geez, maybe we should be putting out more of those top five, top 10, because it just seems like people gravitate towards them. But I, I don't know if you're a sucker for those types of headlines as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for clickbait, so uh, the algorithm knows me, Mike. You're an easy one to solve then, I guess. And it's interesting as well. I think recently with the rounds table, what we've changed is that we 
we're trying to only put out podcast episodes on randomized trials. I've spent so much time in grad school and then some learning about observational studies and real world data and blah, blah, blah. Those studies are fun to do, but they're almost never going to change practice. I, I have to be honest with myself. And certainly throughout the pandemic, I got, I've gotten more involved with uh, clinical trials, which has been a terrific learning experience, but not what we're going to talk about today. But that has been the main impetus for why we've decided, you know what, we're going to try to only record and cover randomized trials because that is what you need to change practice. Not always, but very often. But But I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, as somebody who's really not a clinical trialist or researcher in that field at all, you know, as someone who practices clinical medicine and likes to look at the evidence, I do think it's really important to understand the methodology and, you know, the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, you know, the ways in which they came up with their trial protocol. And I love that rounds table does that because ultimately, you know, that's what helps establish guidelines, I think, in, in a lot of cases, maybe not all. And so when you ask questions like, why are we trying to get to Ramipril 10 milligrams? Why, why not 5 milligrams? Why not 2.5 milligrams? The answer is, well, that, that's just what the trial did. And that's what's been adopted into the guidelines. And it's not that we don't know that 5 or 2.5 milligrams are ineffective or less effective. That's just not what was studied. And that's not where the effect came from. So I think what's great about the rounds table is that you provide an avenue that's easily digestible and accessible to really understand those nuances in the trial, which then better helps you understand or at least maybe gauge the nuance when applying it to your clinical practice. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I sometimes send some of the episodes to my mentors to, to get their feedback on. And Dave Urlink, if you're listening, his feedback was too much method stuff. He didn't use the exact words of this is too nerdy, but I think that's what he was alluding to. So John and I have backed up a little bit to not get too deep into the weeds. But if you want to understand these trials, you got to get at least a tiny bit of nuance to it. But it is hard to talk about methods and still keep it interesting and engaging. And this is coming from somebody who loves methods. And it's also interesting when I think about what other specialties have done. Like, look at the Emerge ICU and sort of NEFJC world. I kind of feel like they've made this stuff work really well within their specialties and made it cool and engaging, which makes me wonder, how do we get there for general internal medicine? Yeah, totally. I don't know. Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot, too, about how do we garner sort of a larger community of practice in general internal medicine that's not country specific or school specific? You know, how do we bring us together beyond, you know, some of the bigger conferences and have more engagement? And I think that's what nephrology, hematology, emergency medicine do so well is that, you know, they are really engaging with people all across the world with different levels of practice, with different interests. And I think that that is the reason for their success. It makes everyone feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, that they're working towards common goal. And I think for internal medicine, that's something that we 
can definitely harness a little bit more in the online community. And what that looks like, I'm not sure. I'm open to any brainstorming ideas if anyone's listening to this. But I really think that that is where their power lies and how much they work together and the collaborative properties that they use to really enhance the communication, enhance the culture, enhance the community of practice within which they work. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the really cool things that NFJC did is, uh, I don't know if you ever watched NCAA basketball, or maybe you do now, but you know, an undergrad, I can think of it with my roommates, and we'd have like our brackets for which basketball teams we thought were, were going to win during March Madness. And it was a ton of fun. And NefJC did the same thing, but for what will the top, you know, Nefro article be of the year? And you sort of like battle off between the two and pick your bracket for, for what you think is going to win. And I think making it fun and making it engaging goes so, so far. I think a, a big thing that ICU and the ER world have done is putting out like the newsletters that they have and maybe newsletter isn't the perfect way to describe them. I guess some of them are more like blogs. So, you know, I've thought a bit about like, is it worthwhile putting out a newsletter or putting out a blog? For me, it's just so much easier to listen to something than it is to read something. But then when I talk to some of the more junior trainees, for them, it's like, no, no, I want to see something. I want a short video. And maybe that's in the TikTok era, but I haven't gotten there just yet. And I assume your podcast isn't now spinning off into TikTok short videos. Yeah, no, we're not on TikTok yet, but we are on Instagram, which has reels. So I guess technically we could, but I don't have the skills for that as of yet to make it cool like Dr. Glockenflecken or something. But I agree with you. You know, there's always a reason to consider a diverse set of resources for people who have different preferences. So, you know, the way that we've done that is really by harnessing our website, putting up infographics, which are beautifully designed. But maybe there's more that we can do. I don't know. We're not on TikTok yet. So if somebody wants to take that on again, www.theinternetwork.com, just reach out to us. Agreed. Agreed. I have TikTok, Allison. I've used it once or twice. And, and then I stopped. So I got it, but not a user of it. Don't have Instagram. I deleted Facebook a few years ago. I didn't miss it. And I saw Instagram as being too similar to Facebook, which would be a massive time sink for me. So to your point, we probably need some young blood on the rounds table as well. <laughs> yeah, we're sounding so old. I'm like, I started this podcast when I was a resident and now I'm old. What's TikTok? I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Um, no, I'm just sort of kidding. But we we really wanted to take this opportunity to do a crossover to air, you know, episodes from our respective podcasts on each other's platforms. And so this has been really, really great chatting with you, Mike. I hope to do it again soon, maybe open for more collaboration, with whatever that looks like moving forward. And yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Thanks. Yes, yes. Thank you, Allison. Uh, let's do this again. And yeah, looking forward to finding a way for, I don't know, us to create the next Nef JC for internal medicine or something like that. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.